Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I'm Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. Joining me is Professor Francesca Murphy. Hello. And we're joined today by a special guest, Professor Stephen Barr. Professor Barr is uh, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Delaware, where he works on theoretical particle physics. He is also the president of the Society of Catholic Scientists, which can be found at Catholic Scientists, one word, .org, a website that offers a lot of resources on questions of religion and science. Professor Barr is also the author of The Believing Scientist, Essays on Science and Religion and Modern, and also the author of Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. He's also written a number of influential physics papers, which are too technical for me to understand, but that is part of the reason for having him with us today on Minding Scripture. We would like to sort through some science today in the clearest terms possible while asking the questions, has science made scripture obsolete? Does it somehow disprove the Bible or the Quran? And I'd like to start, Steve, with a question just about materialism. In your works, including The Believing Scientist, you introduce some of the fallacies and maybe some of the intellectual weaknesses of the materialist argument. Could you generally introduce us to the idea of materialism? So materialism is the idea that is a philosophical idea uh, that says that the ultimate reality is matter, that in the final analysis, everything can be explained in terms of matter and its behavior. Um, most scientists who are atheists um, are atheists really because they're materialists. Right. Um, and so it, what I tell people is that the, the, the warfare that they've heard about is not between religion and science. It's really between religion and what's called scientific materialism. Right, right. And you make the case in The Believing Scientist that there's an element of faith also in the method with which science is advanced. Just have a short quotation here, which I'll read um, from your work, Believing Scientist. The words of St. Augustine apply, in a way, to the scientist as much as to the theologian. Credo ut intelligam. I believe in order that I may understand. Is this a sort of response to some of the presuppositions of materialism? Could you explain that quotation? Yes. I mean, so uh, a scientist um, believes that the world makes sense, as, as do as do Christians. That's something that we share in common. The world makes sense. That's an assumption, of course. Um, the scientist is convinced that there is an answer to the to whatever he's puzzling about. That that if he seeks and and, and hard enough, if he right, if he works right. hard enough at it, eventually the answer will be found. And it, and whatever the anomaly or puzzle that he's trying to understand will make sense. In, in the light of, of some new idea. In, in an analogous way to theologians seeking to understand the mysteries of the faith or something like that. Yes, and in fact, I would say, you know, I, I like one way of thinking about God is that God is the ultimate act of understanding. He is the infinite act of understanding that who, who comprehends all things, who knows all things and understands all things. And if you have the science, we have faith that everything makes sense. Right. And, and therefore, there is some 
ultimate act of understanding that would make sense of everything, and that act of understanding is God. The scientist has a sort of the same kind of faith in a more limited way that the particular questions he's at, the particular things he's studying makes sense. But if you sort of generalize, and th- that there is an answer, and that some, at some point, if they work hard enough, that the light bulb will go on, and they'll have this flash of insight, say, aha, that's what's going on. Well, God is the sort of the infinite flash of insight that makes sense of everything. And so I, I would say it's, it's, it's believing in God is sort of an, ex, it is an extension, really, of the attitude of the scientists, uh, taking it to its limit. Right. So as you know, a lot of people feel that in order to do that effectively, that is, in order to do science effectively, you need to sort of get rid of I don't know, primitive ideas or any sort of slavish imitation of ideas found in Scripture. So we'd like to turn to Scripture, especially because it's what we do on this podcast of Mining Scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely you would say there are some things in the Bible that should not be taken literally, right? I mean, right. Um, I, right. maybe you could give some examples of those and introduce us a little bit to how a scientist can read Scripture in a sophisticated manner. Well, a good example of something that wouldn't shouldn't be taken seriously would be the six days of creation. Mm-hmm. But you know, even Saint Augustine and it, it, the idea that not everything in Scripture should be taken literalistically, shall we say, in a narrow literalistic way, goes back to the Church Fathers and and uh, 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 Origen and Saint Augustine and and other of great uh, early Christian. Uh, thinkers did right. not take the six days. St. Augustine believed that the universe was created in an instant. And so he did not believe that there was a, a, a period of time, whether six days or six anything. So he, he, t- he took that as, as symbolic. And uh, so that's, that's a traditional way of, under, of reading scripture. And so that's, that's, that's a, a very important example. But there are many other things in, in Genesis that shouldn't be taken as literalistic scientific accounts of what went on. In terms of the Genesis 1 account, even if we don't read it literally, it still sup- one would still suppose from reading this chapter that the earth is sort of the center of the story, right? I mean, it does speak of um, you know the formation of the greater light and the lesser light, the division of the waters, the, right. um, the, the land mass, and then eventually the creation of life on earth. But we know from science that um, the Earth is orbiting a sort of uh, an ordinary kind of st- a star in a galaxy that um, is not really extraordinary itself, and it's just one of 100 billion galaxies or something like that. Maybe you could give the precise number. So, I mean, is, is that a problem that we have that sort of, I don't know, what seems like an imbalance? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, th- certainly Scripture is, in a way, well, theocentric and anthropocentric. It's, it's scripture is concerned not so much concerned with the details of what goes on in the natural world. Um, it's concerned with man's relationship to God and man's relationship to man. It's not. It is. It's. It's. It's uh, not concerned with with. It is very little discussion of how things work in the natural world. That that's not the focus of scripture. Um, so we shouldn't. Exp- so yes, and and of course, it's also an ancient principle of scriptural interpretation that the scripture speaks about the world in the terms that were uh, ordinarily used at the time. Saint Thomas Aquinas said that that it speaks as as ordinary 
people speak. Right. Um, it would have been because it would have been confusing. I mean, he, he makes the point that it would have been confusing to people uh, to whom it was first addressed if it started dragging in all sorts of details of custom of you know <laughs> of uh, of astronomy and um, you know and, and, and science, which that, which were not its purpose. That's for sure. Yes. Blaise Pascal once said, the eternal silence of the infinite spaces terrifies me. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me, uh, I, I agree with him about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just thinking about the stars and the size of the universe and billions of silent, empty galaxies, it used to, you know, it, it makes me think it's crazy to imagine that God is especially interested in us. Mm-hmm. which seems to be the idea that we would find of creation in in any of the descriptions of creation in the Bible, not just Genesis 1, but in Job and in the prophets and so on in Proverbs. So then, after years of worrying about this, it struck me that if God wanted this earth to exist with the people and the fall and the restoration, God would, in, in inverted commas, and I can't do inverted commas on a podcast, but imagine <laughs> inverted commas, God would have to uh, create, he would have to put this world that he cared about in a universe with millions of silent and empty galaxies. Right. I don't like to say that God would have to do anything, because it's bad metaphysics, but mm-hmm. as we understand science today, God couldn't stick the earth at the center of a Ptolemaic-type universe with crystalline spheres making music as they grind around in circular motion right so uh, it's a, pascal's not just pascal but the psalmist made the same point when he talked about you know when he beheld the the moon and this what is man that thou that thou uh, that you care about him you know? um so one answer to that is is the one you give which is a scientific answer um what we know now uh is that if you assume that the, the nature is governed by uh, the laws of, of uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, that that's the correct account of gravity, uh, then you can't have a universe that's con- much smaller than the one we have and still have human life uh, develop in it. Uh, because it takes a long time for life. First, before even life begins, you have to have all sorts of astrophysical processes that take billions of years just to produce the chemical elements. And then after that, you need billions of years to produce sophisticated forms of life, such as ourselves, by biological evolution. But there's, So the universe has to be extremely old if we're going to be here. Uh, but that also implies, by, by Einstein's theory of gravity, that also implies the universe has to be enormously large because there's a relationship between the size and the age of the universe. So if you if you demanded, if keeping Einstein, assuming Einstein's theory, if you demanded that the universe never got bigger than some more comfortable scale, like the size of the Earth or the size of the solar system, the universe would only have lasted for a very short time. Uh, even if the universe never got bigger than the solar system, uh, it would only last for a matter of hours not the billions of years you need to produce uh, life such as ourselves. And I also should say, we're not, we're not so clear that we're the only uh, rational beings in the universe. Uh, it's quite possible that there are extraterrestrial, intelligent beings, rational beings, 
there could be quite a large number of such species, and presumably they're made in the image of God, and God loves them. And so uh, we know that God loves us, and presumably if there are other rational beings in the universe, he, he would love them too. So, uh, Well, I'm, I'm going to turn to another universe question. I okay. was just meditating for a second on... So I'm I'm, I'm still I kind of not I'm trying to follow you here right the only uh-huh. thing I know we used to chant this in the back of the car as children right. the time is the distance divided by the speed <laughs> is it something like that you say that yes, it actually, wouldn't have it actually, this age unless it had this size and I'm yes, trying to follow a, you on this right there there is a connection between and and it essentially the size of the universe is more is roughly the age of the universe times the speed of light gives you about the size of the universe the universe wow, it, so it, a so, but not not exactly so the universe is uh, i mean since the big bang it's been about 14 billion years and the universe that we can observe the observable part of it is uh tens not 14 billion light years but tens of billions of light years Across, I forget the exact number. It may be close, something like fifty, but it's it's in that ballpark. So the, yeah, it's 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 what you said. <laughs> With the, so, no, the universe we don't. The universe could actually be infinitely large. We don't know. It's uh, that's an open question. Okay, so um, but I mean, just my particular question. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I described this to my my first year undergraduates that, that that given the state of modern science, it would have to be this size, um, in order for God to have a little planet that He loved. And so one of the students in the first row, Raj, you know, he's he's never been in a theology class before, and he said, "Well, if God created the laws according to which all of this is possible or impossible." Why couldn't he have made the laws differently so that it looked like the book of Genesis? He, he could have. Uh, I mean, so when I, I, mean, I was careful to say that if you assume Einstein's theory of gravity, I see. Then, then, then there's then if you make certain assumptions about the laws, then you, you find that the universe has to be very old, uh, billions of years old, and has to be many billions of light years across. But God could. God could make a universe. God could have made the universe. God could have created things exactly as described in the book of Genesis. So, I mean, he is omnipotent. Um, personally, as a physicist, I think the way he chose to actually create the universe or, or to, to have it uh, develop is much, more, is much more beautiful and interesting. <laughs> you, you speak in the book about, about beauty and that mm-hmm. I, we're sort of moving to another topic maybe, but you speak about even some scientists who may or may not be believers, they, they tend in recent scholarship to use that language, the language of beauty, mm-hmm. that they find even in mathematics, like the beautiful right. mathematical equation, but also in the description of the universe. Um, yeah, is, this is a recent trend that there's more well, interest I, I, in the, the beauty of physics or of mathematics. And, yes, well, I, yes. It, it, though scientists have always been impressed by the beauty of the universe. So, I mean, one of my favorite quotes goes back 400 years to, to Johannes Kepler, who, who discovered the, his famous laws of planetary motion. He was almost really the first modern scientist, I suppose, after, well, uh, but he was a giant figure in the history of, of science. And he, he uh, uh, said, I thank, I thank you, Lord God, our creator, that you have allowed me to see the beauty in, in your work of creation. So, the, the, but you're right that, that 
uh, beauty as a, as a uh, criterion for judging the plausibility or how promising uh, a theory is. Uh, when, when physicists are trying to come up with improvements or new theories, uh, beauty is a, is a very important criterion, and that's gotten increasingly so over the course of the 20th century. And it is a very famous example of that, where one of the great discoveries in physics of the 20th century was something called the Dirac equation. It, de- it describes how electrons and other such particles move, how they behave. And Dirac... Um, he, he, he came up with this equation by, as he said, playing around with some mathematics. And when he was playing around with certain mathematics, as he worked on this problem, he, he, he hit on something that he said was pretty. That was the word he used. He said, right. yeah, it, was, right. it was pretty, and I knew that it must be significant. And he said he knew he must be on the right track because of the beauty of the mathematics. And in fact, he's fam- he famously said, it's more important to have beauty in your equations than to have them agree with experiment. <laughs> we tend to think that beauty is misleading because Ptolemaic astronomy, they were addicted to the notion of perfect circular motion. Mm-hmm. Because they thought that was beautiful, right? Well, there's a joke I heard. I forget who said this, but phys- science is about beautiful theories coming into conflict with ugly facts. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but but uh, nevertheless, I think it's uh, most physicists would say, or people in fundamental physics would say, that the more we learned about the phys, the deeper we go in uh, in our understanding of the physical world, the more beautiful the mathematics, the more beautiful the theories are. Right. Um, and so I don't, that's not really controversial, uh, I would say. Uh, it, it may be in the eye of the beholder, but there are certain historical reasons for thinking it's not just in the eye of the beholder. I don't think beauty to, is in the eye of the beholder. I no, I don't think so either. But one of, the, one of the remarkable things in the history of physics, which many people have commented on, is that, uh, it, that people, it, it's in the history of math, mathematics, Mathematicians worked on, developed certain branches of mathematics and certain mathematical ideas, which seemed to have zero, absolutely no relevance to the, to, the, to the physical world. And they worked on them and developed them because they were mathematically beautiful. And it was only decades, and in some cases a century later, that this very beautiful mathematics was found to be necessary to describe the, the laws, of, to, to, to formulate the laws of physics. And that people have commented, this has happened over and over, that mathematics that was worked on only because it was beautiful math later turned out to be necessary to describe nature. I, I'd like to teach my children that, that that is a phrase that is plausible, beautiful math. They, they, would, they would object. <laughs> I, Mathematicians I wanted, like to say elegant. <laughs> elegant, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask about maybe an ugly affair. We've been speaking about beauty. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everyone is, uh, who thinks about the history of the church's engagement with science thinks of Galileo. I uh, one of the most startling moments that I had an encounter with interest in Galileo was when I was um, at a house of a Muslim family in Lebanon, and they said, you know, people say uh, uh, so, some of the sons of the family there they gathered. We were having coffee after dinner, and they said, you know, people say that Islam is backwards, but look at what uh, the Catholic Church did with Galileo. So, um, you know, you speak about this in your writings and. Um, if I understood it correctly, which who knows, but um, you say something like uh, what was really at stake there wasn't really science versus religion, but two different ideas of the cosmos, neither of which actually 
is accurate or scientific by today's standards, but the church simply held one of them to be more faithful to Scripture. So am I getting this right? You don't see that as a classical example of science versus religion. Well, I th- it, it, is, it, was, it was a clash, but I think saying science versus religion is misleading because there were scientists on both sides of that issue. In fact, most scientists at the time were on the opposite side of, than Galileo, and there were and they were churchmen. There were there were theologians and, and clergy on both sides. So it wasn't the scientists were on one side and the religious the religious uh, people were on the other. In fact, the scientists in that era were virtually all religious themselves. So it's misleading to say science versus religion. But it is <clears throat> an example. There, there can be clashes between theology and science, uh, and and that that's that's because. They come. They have different sources and methods. So, you know, theology is based on on revealed truth, and has its own methods of interpretation and, and so on. And science is based uh, on you know empirical data and so forth. And so, in principle, they could clash. Uh, and that was a case where they seemed to, uh, though though as Saint Augustine pointed out and. John Henry Newman and many others, when there seems to be a clash, it's either because the science isn't being done quite right or the theology isn't being done quite right. And that if, if you do them both right, there can't be a clash. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, but I would, instead of litigating that case over and over again, I think what people should realize is that that was sort of one tragic episode in a really 800-year history of the church's interaction with science. And the churches actually um, had a rather glorious record in, in science. If, if people go to our website of our Society of Catholic Scientists, we have the biographies, uh, uh, readable short biographies of 84 important scientists of the past who were devout uh, practicing Catholics. And many people don't realize that they know the name Galileo, but they don't realize that there are many other names that they that they should know. That the founder of the Big Bang theory was a Catholic, was a physicist who was a Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre. That the you know Mendel, the founder of genetics, was a was an I, Augustinian. I wonder, I wonder so if Father, they, Father Zom of Notre Dame made that list. Did he get in there? Um, well, I wouldn't say that he was, I wouldn't, no, he's not, I wouldn't say he was an important scientist. Okay. So our list of 84 only has people, so there are many Catholic scientists, but we put 84 okay. who sort of made very notable contributions. Yeah, he's philosophy of science. Okay, okay, okay. But uh, whole branches of, of science were founded by Catholic priests. One of the founders of astrophysics was a, was a Jesuit priest, uh, Angelo Secchi. The founder of geology really was a, a, a Catholic, what, what became a bishop eventually, was a, was a Catholic priest named, uh, uh, a, now blessed, Nicholas Steno. And I could go on and on talking about really important scientists who were priests. Uh, and pe- people should know that. So I'm shocked. You know, I talk to audiences and I say, sometimes I ask them, what name comes to mind when you think of the Catholic Church and science? I ask Catholic audiences. They, unanimously, everyone says Galileo. But they don't know Lemaitre, they don't know Secchi, they don't know, well, they do know Mendel usually, but they don't know, there's a glorious history here, and that was sort of one, the exception that proved the rule, right. really. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a question, and maybe Francesco follow up on this, but about um, evolution. I mean, you say evolution is different than the Galileo affair. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, you probably have to qualify that, because there it's not really 
two different scientific theories which are competing, um, one of which obviously was better than the other in the Galileo case. But, uh, I mean, the, uh, young Earth creationism is not a, I think you would say, a viable scientific no. uh, no. theory. And so um, th- this is a different sort of beast, right? That, that right. Right, because in the Galileo affairs, you pointed out, and I probably should have picked up uh, on that, the, the, actually the scientific consensus on whether the Earth went around the sun or vice versa, that actually didn't get resolved among scientists until Newton came along, which was, um, which was about well, 60 or 70 years after Galileo got in trouble. And it was, the science was still very much contested, and there were very strong scientific arguments on both sides of that question of the, of, of, of the solar system. And how, but uh, when it comes to evolution, uh, the jury is not out. It's not still out. The jury came back quite a long time ago. There's overwhelming evidence in favor of evolution. And uh, the, the young Earth creationist accounts are not science. They're, they they're, should not be dignified with the name of science. So my question then is, okay, supposing Genesis 1 and 2 is not supposed to be taken literally, mm-hmm. still, saying that it describes anything like the history of the evolution of the species over millions of years, it seems to be a stretch. And has that ever bothered you, and why doesn't it bother you now? If it does? No, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me, because I think, the, the, as I said, St. Augustine, for example, um, well, I regard as the greatest of the early church fathers. He 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 did not take that to be a period of time at all, and so he said the universe was created in an instant. And not only that, he said that all the subsequent development that happened in the universe was the unfolding of potentialities that God had implanted in the universe. In the and he said in the ele- very elements at the beginning at the at the creation, and which is a very you know similar to our modern scientific view is that there's been a natural unfolding due to the potentialities that have been implanted in nature. Um, that's also St. Thomas Aquinas said he, he said he also preferred St. Augustine's view to a literalistic account. Um, but I think that the six days do teach us something. I mean, they're, they're not just bad science. They're not attempting to be. They teach us very profound truths, and, and there are many ways of understanding the six days. One is, first of all, it, they symbolize the fact that creation is orderly, That it, and, it, and uh, you know, God deliberates when he creates the world, and he creates it in an orderly fashion. And one um, way of understanding the six days is that the first three days uh, in the first three, God creates the the parts of the universe, the heavens, the earth, the seas, and so forth. In the next three days, he creates the, the beings that inhabit those parts. So on the fourth day, he, he inhabits the, the part of the world made on the first and so forth, the fifth and the second correspond, and the sixth and the third. So then he fills, populates the universe with beings, culminating in human beings, and then comes the day of rest. And you can see that as sort of teleological, that the universe itself exists for the sake of life. And life, in at least terrestrial life, you could argue, exists ultimately uh, as an end that is the human, the human race. And that human beings, in turn, are, are ordered towards worship, which is the seventh day, towards co- communion with God and rest in God. And so there, there is a deep, there are deep theological symbolism there. 
people who try to take that as some sort of a scientific account are just missing the boat entirely. Right. They're just reading it as a kind of literature that it wasn't. I mean, you, you wouldn't read a physics paper to, 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 uh, for its theological insights. You shouldn't read a theological account for physics insights. Right. It's just a mistake. So um, in, in regard to evolution, many of us are just fine with human evolution. I mean, many believers are just fine with human evolution. But the question, the particular question of the origin of the human soul is complicated. And I think in Catholic tradition in particular, there's a teaching from Pius Twelfth and an encyclical that the human soul could not have evolved. Um, so could you speak about, you know, then... I mean, is that is it more complicated than that? Are there other views within the believing scientific community, or do we think that at one history in the evolution of uh, of humans and Homo sapiens and uh, from Australopithecus to I don't know where that a human soul was sort of um, inspired into into one of them? Right. So I, I I would like to go back to the question you asked earlier about interpreting Genesis because I think this ties in with your question. In Genesis, uh, in, in the creation of man, uh, it describes it, it, it describes God uh, forming the dust of the earth in right. to form Adam, right. and then breathing into Adam. And so the early church fathers saw this as as showing as as symbolizing. That human beings have a sort of a, a, a double origin. That at the earthy, earthly level, at the material level, we come from below. We come from the dust of the earth. But that at the spiritual level, our spiritual souls are, are breathed into us or conferred upon us by a direct uh, act of God. And so, for the way Catholics would look at evolution, who who believe in evolution, uh, Catholic scientists and Catholic theologians would say. Evolution is simply an account of how the dust of the earth got formed into to form the bodies and, and the brains and to form these living things, including human beings. But that at the spiritual level, it took a special creative act. And so there was a gradual process of develop, evolution over many millions of years to produce hominins, as you said, and very intelligent creatures. Um, but at a certain point, the God God acted in a special way to raise some of these creatures uh, to the to a higher level of existence, which is the level of rationality and freedom. And freedom. Because right. what makes a human being spiritual uh, in Catholic tradition is primarily that we have uh, reason and free will. And so God raised some of these creatures to a higher level of existence, and a level that could not achieve just by the processes of physics and chemistry and biology. And I think there are very strong philosophical arguments that that certain that the human powers of reason and free will cannot be explained in purely material terms, in terms of physics and biology and so on. So I think that actually is a strong philosophical support for the idea that there had to be something special done in the case of human beings. I heard a, a bit of a talk given by Isaac Asimov sometime in the 1970s in which he said, you know, humans are great. We should be proud that um, we're sort of the best of the mammals and the mammals took over from the <laughs> reptiles. But eventually robots or computers are going to be better than us and we'll have to sort of yield authority over to them. 
And that's just normal. It's just fine. And I thought, I don't know. Everybody thinks so now they're going to take over. Gonna take AI over. is going to take over. <laughs> well, on, on the one hand, well, first of all, uh, there's no uh, robots. They certainly can do certain things better than we can do them, including playing chess, which right. I, was my hobby. And Deep Blue. And de- right, and they can and they can now beat people at Go and other games. Yes. They're, they're, but they, but there's they do not have conceptual understanding. They first of all, it's it, no very few people believe that any of the computers, however powerful that we have constructed so far, are even conscious. So if they're not even conscious, it's not, it, how can they? They wouldn't have conceptual understanding. So the computer may crush you in a game of chess, but it's it's doing it by brute force calculations. It's not doing it because it has any conceptual understanding of what's going on. And also, they certainly don't have free will. I don't think anybody thinks that any of these computers actually have free will. Um, or as traditionally say, rational wills. Right. Uh, they, you know, the, I mean, they can make decisions of what move to make in the chess game, but they're, but they're not grasping things like justice or truth So um, they're they're not going to they're going to be very powerful, but they're not going to they're not going to be rational beings and and free, rational and free the way we are. Right. Right. I I heard when I heard that excerpt, the commentator on this program said and the European Parliament has actually passed some sort of motion to uh, ensure that future robots and computers are controlled by three laws of. Ethical robot behavior. That's Asimov. It's Asimov. Exactly. (laughs) Well, why don't we take a break right there, Um, friends? This is a great time to review and to rate my new scripture, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Mining Scripture. Do you think there is any mileage in what is called creation science? I like Saul Bellow's line that the universe is not like a cardboard box. It's more like a Louis Couture's desk. But Catholics seem to despise creation science and regard it as a kind of a decadent version of the arguments from design from the Middle Ages. Uh, why is that? Well, I think the, the creation science um, is actually a very modern phenomenon. I, I, I really think it, it actually it really developed in the 1960s. Um, most of the Christian world that had um, hammered out a, a better understanding of how to harmonize uh, the, the, the theological understanding of creation and uh, with 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 the scientific perspective, but I think it it, it actually is a pe- peculiarly. I'm not. I don't want to disparage Protestants, but th- those Protestants who are uh, sola who take sola scriptura to the point that that uh, scripture on, alone and literally interpreted is the only source of truth. Uh, um, developed the creation science. And I think that form, that kind of very narrow literalism was a modern reaction to liberal theology because they saw people interpreting, say, moral teachings of the Bible mm-hmm. and, and sort of dismissing them and say, well, we can, we can explain, our, you know, we can interpret the Bible in such a way we don't have to believe this the- theological doctrine or this moral doctrine anymore. 
and, and to sort of protect themselves against the, that sort of radical reinterpretations of scripture, uh, they said, well, we, we, we better stick to the, to the literal word. They don't have a magisterium to guide them. And so uh, the, the only way they could defend against against this these sort of radical interpretations of scripture was to adopt a very narrowly literalistic way of interpreting it, which then led to creation science. So I think it's a modern phenomenon. It, I don't. It's it really has no roots. I would say deep roots in, in but tradition. I, I was thinking of an argument such as you find in say Darwin's A Black Box. Mm-hmm. where the author argues that something like the eye could not have evolved just randomly because it's too complicated. Well, it's possible. I mean, I I, I think it's certainly not... I don't think that's a foolish line of argument. I, I don't think... I think the questions being raised by the intelligence design movement are intelligent... If they're, if they're questions, are intelligent ones. That is, there are... Some of the some of the complexity you see in the biological world is is quite astonishing. I mean, look at the human brain. Yeah. Uh, or look at, or as Mike B. He says in his Darwin's black box. That's even, the one even, I'm thinking of. Yeah, even one cell is astonishingly intricate. Yeah. Look at it, and and that does raise a legitimate question: Can uh, the mechanisms of natural selection and so forth uh, can they account for that degree of complexity? Um, it's a good question. I I don't like i think it's a mistake to try to argue for god uh by saying that ne- there are no natural explanations of that therefore god must have done it in a supernatural way um because that i think is um that is setting god against nature which is not the traditional catholic view if you go back to early christian writings they didn't see evidence for god in things that were beyond nature, not naturally explicable. They saw the evidence for God in nature itself. Nature testified to its author. And the argument they always used, if you go back to early church fathers, they pointed to the order of nature, its lawfulness, as evidence of God. They did not point to miraculous things as evidence of the existence of God. Uh, and so I think it's it's off it's it, it it's taking us off it, it's it's setting up a very bad uh, alternative that it, it, it either nature explains things or God explains them, which is not the traditional view, which is that God is God is the author of nature, and so he's seen in nature. He's not an alternative to natural explanations. Um, and so th- that's one reason I, I don't like the intelligence design movement. I, I'd be happy if they could find some f- biological structure that could not ne- be naturally explained. Great. Then, then we could all say, okay, see, this can't be naturally explained. Therefore, God exists. Unfortunately, I, t- I just don't think it's that easy to find such structures where you could really definitively say this could not have naturally arisen. It, 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 it's a hard argument to make. And as I said, I think it distracts people from the traditional argument. For God. Francesca and I are speaking with Stephen Barr, theoretical particle physicist and at the University of Delaware and president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. The, the next question I have, I think I'm going to combine two, and it's related to what Francesca was just raising. In, in, in the book, The Believing Scientist, you raise um, or you use the phrase which you call the story of science, mm-hmm. which I understood is basically the claim that uh, religion keeps on retreating as um, science 
disproves more and more traditional religious notions. Um, but then you sort of counter, you have a counterpunch, which is mm-hmm. that actually, um, you know, that, that might have been the case in the 19th century, but it's not the case, or it wasn't the case in the 20th century, right. um, as there's been a basically, I, I think you use the phrase, a, a plot twist in 20th century science, which actually complicates the materialist view of the world. Right. So could you introduce a bit that dynamic, the, the retreat right. of religion, and then maybe the, the, the comeback right. of the feasibility of a, of a believing view of science? Right. I, 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 I think a lot of, if you listen to a lot of atheists, new, so-called scientific atheists, uh, the new atheists, they, they're really operating with the science of the 19th century. And I have to say, if I were alive in the late 19th century, I would have been made quite nervous by some of the things, the, the direction that science seemed to be going. There seemed to be a trend. Which and 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 that is part of the what I call the old story of science, the atheists with materialist story of science, which is that every great breakthrough somehow gave us, got us further and further away from the traditional Christian view of of, of things. Um, and so you know everyone knows Copernicus showed that we're not at the center of the you know you know we, we used to believe we were the center of the universe, and now we, we you know we're at the fringes of some obscure galaxy. Um, Newton showed, seemed to show that the laws of physics had this sort of iron uh, determinism that, that made it impossible to have free will because everything that happens is uniquely determined by these equations of physics. Everything you do is determined by the equations of physics, so you can't have free will. And there were many th- – uh, science seemed to be pointing to the idea that the universe was eternal that it, in the sense that it had always existed for infinite time and there was no beginning – as uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims believed in. And so one can go one, you know, give many other examples, several other examples, I should say, of, of discoveries that seem to be dragging us away from the traditional view. But in the 20th century, as you, as you, as you said, there were plot twists. And I, in my book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, is largely devoted to talk about five twists in the plot. So whereas before, I'll just take one example, it seemed that the evidence was piling up that the universe was infinitely old. Lo and behold, in the early 20th century, the Big Bang Theory was developed. Einstein's theory of gravity then led to the development of the Big Bang Theory, which we now know is true, which makes it seem much more probable that the universe did have a beginning after all. Well, take one other example. It had seemed in the late 19th century that the laws of physics had this kind of deterministic, rigid character that would make it impossible for people to act freely. But then uh, in the early 20th century, quantum mechanics came along and showed that the laws of physics are not deterministic. The laws of physics do not uniquely tell you what's going to happen. They only give you relative probabilities of different things happening. And so that really swept away a major uh, problem for religious belief. And, and I could go on and give other examples as well. So that now... Um, now I think that, that the, this picture that modern science gives us of the world is much closer to the traditional Judeo-Christian view than the science of, of 100 or 150 years ago. I was going to follow up about the Big Bang business. It, you know, it's something that uh, I struggle to understand, and I speak with my, my kids who are teenagers now, and they help me think think through it. But it could could you? I mean, the the point is that with the Big Bang, it's not as though matter exploded into a three dimensional grid, 
of no, space, right. which was pre-existent, and that a, a magical clock had been ticking from all eternity, and it just right. was at time X, right? It's mm-hmm. the, um, the time-space continuum itself has its origins in the Big Bang. Even, even time so, has its origin. Presumably. So, uh, I mean, now we don't know for sure whether there was something before the Big Bang, but in the standard cosmology, the Big Bang was the beginning of the universe. And even if the Big Bang wasn't the beginning of the universe, there are strong theoretical reasons to believe that the universe did have a beginning at some point. And uh, and that point would not only have been the beginning of material stuff, it would have been the beginning of space and time itself, as you said. Uh, in fact, St. Augustine pointed this out, uh, you know, 15... Hundred years ago, a very profound insight. In, in, in the in the tenth book of his Confessions, he goes into a very deep uh, reflection upon this, and he concludes that there was no such there's no such thing as a time before the beginning of the universe, because the pagans of antiquity had mocked the Christians and Jews by saying, "What was your God doing for that infinite amount of?" They believed that the universe was infinitely old. Right. So they were mocking the idea that the universe had only a finite age. And they said, what was your God doing for that infinite time before he got around to creating the world? Creating a hell to put these people no, in who make these now, jokes. No, no, no. That's Saint what Augustine, Augustine says. That's what Augustine no, he did says. not. No? no, I'm happy. He absolutely didn't. He absolutely didn't. That's a myth. And in fact, he, re- he, he actually angrily, sort of angrily, he quotes that as an answer that some wit had given and, and denounces it. He denounces it. He says, he says, there is someone who is supposed to have said that he was creating hell for those who pry into such deep questions. And he said, I do not answer in that way. I do not give an answer that causes, let me, let me say this, this is very important. I do not give an answer that makes someone who is asking, who is seeking knowledge, that causes someone seeking knowledge to be laughed at. While, while the one who is saying a falsehood is praised, he said, I would rather say I do not know when I do not know than, than to sort of put down someone who's seeking the truth like that. So, so not only did he not say that, he vehemently, uh, he, he was appalled that somebody would say that. Maybe if he um, were living in 2020, he would have. No, so, so actually his real answer was a profound answer. And his real answer I'm glad you said that because this is a very widespread myth, and it's uh, his real answer was that the question isn't, doesn't make sense to ask what was God doing before the world was made because he said there's no such thing as before the world was made because time itself came into existence when the world came into existence. Time is itself something created. So he said, don't ask. There's no such thing as a time before creation because time is itself. And he said, do not ask what God was doing then. There was no then. Right. Where right. There, there is no then where there is no time. Right. A very profound answer, which anticipated the view of modern physics 15 centuries later. Not bad. Which is that there's no time before the universe. Well, I, I had another question about materialism. I'd just like to say something about my question. And yeah. I know Francesca is going to turn to another another topic. But I did want to say I was really impressed with the way you spoke about the problem of conducting science from a materialistic point of view in which humans do not have free will. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, that science, scientific analysis, or for that matter, any sort of analysis... 
um, implies that we're not just controlled by chemical processes, mm-hmm. but we're able to assess. And right. um, you have this great quotation I'd just like to read for our listeners where you write, the pagan bowed down to animals or the likeness of animals in worship. The materialist avers that he himself is no more than an animal. The pagan spoke of fate. The materialist speaks of physical determinism. Anyway, I wanted to make sure I got that in there so everyone, everyone right. the, the, the pagan, The pagan says that our actions are controlled by the orbits of the stars, and the materialist says they're controlled by the orbits of the, of the, of the electrons in our brain. <laughs> so right. it's really... Right. It's really the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's subordinating human beings to nature. And I think this is one of the great things about the book of Genesis is precisely that it counteracted, far from being a, a superstitious or a, a um, supernaturalistic account of the world, it was countering the superstition of pagan religion in which human beings worshipped natural forces as gods, they worship the sun as a deity and the moon, or the forces of nature as divine. Whereas Genesis says, no, these forces of nature, God isn't to be found in nature. He's not a part of nature. He's not a force of nature. God is above nature. He is the creator, the author of nature. But not only that, but the pagans, in a sense, subordinated human beings to uh, to the level of nature, as in the modern materialists do, in a sense. And a Genesis says, no, we are above nature. We, God set us over the, the, the natural world uh, to care for it, you know, uh, um, to, 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 to tend it, you know. To, uh, some people don't like the word to exercise dominion over it. But, but we, Genesis makes very clear that there's something different about us, that we're not just on the level of the beasts. And I think that even if you're not religious, even if you're a humanist, a non-religious humanist, that's an important, very important message that we are, we are not just like other animals. And uh, I think even many non-religious people would understand the importance of that. Right, right. Um, okay, I want to go back to uh, when you were talking about evolution and you spoke about certain potentialities rolling out, as it were, mm-hmm. over time. And of course, this is the original etymological meaning of evoluvere. E- e- that means to roll out. Mm-hmm. And so you speak of evolution as the rolling out of inbuilt potential. But mm-hmm. someone like Richard Dawkins seems to describe it as a whole lot of random things happening one after another. And right. I know you're not a fan of Dawkins. You say <laughs> his mind is a model. And mm-hmm. I wonder, like, how can you adjudicate between these two views? On the one hand, the rolling out of the potentials. On the other hand, this sort of random evolution. Is this right. random evolution? Is that science or is that his philosophy? Well, uh, there's a lot of philosophy overlaid. He, he overlays a lot of philosophy on the science. And I, I, think it's a, I think he's suffering what I would call a trick of perspective. Now, if you look at the universe, the history of the universe, you do see uh, a lot of instances. In fact, this seems to be sort of the overriding story of sort of formlessness sort of turning into form and and uh, you know you start with with just a whole lot of gas and dust you know for the universe is right rather formless with just gas and dust and eventually they co-condense into star galaxies and stars and planets 
and and then you have these orderly structures like the solar system and so forth. And then on the surface of the planet, you just have a lot of chemicals, and, and eventually they 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 form in more complex molecules, and then then you form. And maybe a one-celled organism, which is much more structured, and, and then multi-celled creatures, and so forth. And you and you you see form arising from formlessness, chaos developing into order. And if you look at it that way, then you get the Dawkins view that really we are that mind, and this is the way he would put it, and I think Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, would put it: matter comes first, and then at the end of a long process of formlessness turning into form and structure then you get brains and then you get mind so mind comes at the end but this is all an illusion because that formless stuff that you were looking at that gas and dust filling the universe or those chemicals on the earth you look deeply into them they have a lot of structure the chemicals have all the structure of the periodic table which which you take you know have People take many courses in chemistry to understand all the intricate structure of these chemicals, which ultimately are based on the laws of, of subatomic physics, which is my field, and all of the uh, deep levels of quantum field theory and so forth. There's a lot of very – the deeper you go into the physical world, you find – you don't find formlessness. You don't find – you find deep order that was there from the very beginning of the universe, very rich mathematical structure. Uh, that was there in the elements themselves, in the subatomic particles, in the quantum fields, and so there since the beginning. And so, uh, the form—it's really not form coming from formlessness. The form we see now is an is an is a working out of, is a consequence of deep form that was there from the very beginning in the elements themselves, in the, in the matter itself, and which puts mind back at the beginning because if form was there. If the physical world is built, as, as I tell audience, it's built upon very deep mathematical ideas. The physics is based on very deep mathematics, and the physical world is not made of Legos and Tinker Toys. It's, it's, the architecture of the physical world is based on very deep mathematics, and deep mathematics suggests a mind at work. And so mind is really there at the beginning, I would say, <laughs> not at just the end of an evolutionary process. It was mind at work from the very beginning. And that's where I think Dawkins, maybe if he were a theoretical physicist and not a zoologist, he would have a deeper appreciation of these things. But I don't know. Or maybe if he just was a little more reflective. Well, I think we have one, one more question here. Um, Steve, thank you so much for mm -hmm. um, being with us. And um, I wish we had, had more time. But as, as a last question, I'd like to um, just share with our listeners a um, an anecdote that you share in The Believing Scientist, a story from Chesterton of an English yachtsman who, um, I guess as Chesterton puts it, slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England. And I think you, you quote the story as a way of saying that we're essentially back where we began with science. Um, can, can you explain that? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the winding, science follows a very winding path. And sometimes it seems to, at certain times in history, it seems that path seems to have taken us very far from our religious view of the world. But I, as I say, it's, it's wound its way back in over the last century. And I think it's actually science has begun to rediscover in some areas 
things that we've known all along. It's just as the English yachtsman thought he was way off in the in the in the South Seas, the South Seas somewhere. Right. He found out. Oh no! He began to recognize he's he's home. He he discovers that his wanderings have brought him home. Um, and I think science actually, at the end of the, what people have to have confidence in, if you are a faithful Catholic, you have to trust that, that the, when we, the more, the truth event, the road, uh, pursuit of truth will ultimately lead back to the truths, to be, to truths uh, that have been revealed by God. And I think we even see some evidence that that's happened over the, over the course of science. But we shouldn't be disturbed every time science seems to discover something a little unsettling because in the, at, at the end of the road, we know where the road is heading. It's not going to lead to discoveries that are incompatible with what God has revealed because God is both the author as, as, as St. Augustine and as Galileo said, he's not only the author of the book of scripture, he's also the author of the book of nature. And so those two books in the, at, the, at the end will be found to be harmonious. That's a beautiful final final thought. Thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate, appreciate having thank you. Thank you very with much. Us. Friends, thank you for joining us and be sure to be with us for the next episode of Minding Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet. <laughs>